Ave and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast series looking at the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith. With me, as always, is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode X, the Augustan succession. After a long period of peace, we've now reached the end of the rule of Emperor Augustus. The time has come to ensure that his good family name remains in power and that he's appropriately remembered by the citizens of Rome. Here's Rhiannon Evans. So after a lengthy reign of 41 years and he's getting near the end of his lifespan, how does he turn his mind towards uh, who's going to succeed him? Well, he certainly doesn't do it at the end. He's been doing it pretty much since the beginning Mm. because as soon as he comes to power, he starts looking for a successor pretty much. That's not surprising given that a lot of leaders are short-lived in that first century BC period. The first one that he looks at is his nephew Marcellus. Marcellus dies very young though in his 20s. He's the one that he, he named a building after him, he? Didn't named he? the Theatre of Marcellus yes. after him. It's his sister's son. And the indication, the real indication that Marcellus was the designated successor is that Augustus marries his daughter, Julia, to Marcellus. Augustus doesn't have a son, or certainly not a legitimate one, but Julia, poor Julia, is just married off to the various successors along the way. So first of all, she marries Marcellus, and she's not married very long because he dies very young. Then she's married off to Agrippa, the man who had basically won the Battle of Actium for Augustus. That's a marriage that lasts quite a while, and she has five children. Now, what this means is that Augustus now has some grandsons who he proceeds to adopt, and they are designated as his successors. So these are the children of his daughter and the man who I suppose a lot of Romans at that point saw as the symbol of the army, one of the leading soldiers. Yeah, absolutely. They're very popular. The two elder boys, Gaius and Lucius, they're pushed forward very early on, kind of in their late teens. They're given magistracies and honours, which in the Republic would have been unheard of until you were well into your 30s. Uh, They're enrolled in the Senate, you know, given that the word Senate means old men, and given that both Gaius and Lucius also die very young in their late teens, early 20s, out on campaign in the case of Gaius, means that they have been very, very clearly pushed for succession, but they're both dead well before Augustus, so uh, he has to look elsewhere, and he doesn't have any direct family members left. He doesn't have any sons of Julia left except for the one who died after his father, Agrippa. So he's named after Agrippa, but he's given the name Posthumus because he was Posthumus to his father. And Agrippa Posthumus is kind of the black sheep of the family and he's been sent into exile. So he's not really... What happened there? We don't know. Oh, okay. He displeased Augustus in some way. So he's the only legitimate grandchild left of Augustus. Well, there are two daughters, two granddaughters. Oh, sorry. But the only son. The only son, and yet he still manages to get himself exiled. Yes. That's one heck of a black sheep. (laughs) (laughs) He's got no members of his own family left, no more sons of Julia, except the one that is already sent off to exile. So he turns to his stepson. He's married a woman called Livia, his second wife, and they don't have any children together, but Livia already has two sons. In fact, she was pregnant with the second son when she married Augustus. 
and he adopts her son Tiberius and Tiberius actually will be the one who outlives him. Tiberius, he has a great reputation as a military figure so he seems like a very good bet. Although if you read the cynical view of that family as for example the historian Tacitus does, he's a very very skeptical kind of writer, then Tiberius was sort of his last choice, mm. the sort of least worst choice, at least he's he's related to him in some way and he adopts him so he becomes the successor but he's sort of the successor that Augustus never wanted. Yeah, and there right. are signs that that's true because Tiberius had kind of gone into voluntary exile for quite a while, he'd taken himself off to Rhodes, taken himself away from the imperial family. So that does look like there was a rift there and he has to be brought back and sort of reintegrated when no one else is left. So now that he's got his successor in place, how does he die? How does it pass over? He's quite elderly, certainly by Roman standards. He's reached a good old age into his mid-70s. It's fairly likely that he, he died of old age. But Tacitus, because he is a cynical writer, tells us that there were rumours that he was killed by his wife Livia. And in fact, Tacitus really has it in for Livia and accuses her of getting rid of various other people. And the incentive, of course, is that she wants her own son to become the next princeps, the next man in charge. And it's possible that Augustus was making some moves towards making friends again, as it were, with Agrippa Posthumus. And Agrippa Posthumus is of his bloodline. Mm. He's the son of his own daughter. Yeah. So that could be a possible danger. And this may be malicious gossip because Livia has a terrible reputation. So almost anything that's said about Livia tends to get believed. But if that's the case, then there's this rumour, which may or may not be true, that Livia got rid of him. So while he was still alive and in power, he started building a mausoleum so that his ashes could be placed there and he could be commemorated. What was his intentions behind this? He does it very early. It's not something he starts doing in later life. So it, very early, it's a sign that he wants to make his presence known after he's gone because his mausoleum is huge. It's the kind of statement that kings normally make, Hellenistic kings. And the word mausoleum comes from Mausolus, which is the name of a Hellenistic king. So Augustus starts building this in 30 BCE. He's not even Augustus at that point. It's as soon as he gets back to Rome, that's what he starts having done. And it's, it's a commemoration for him. It's where his ashes are going to be interred. And it's a, a dynastic statement from very early on because there's space for all the members of his family. So his wife Livia is going to be there. Anybody who dies within that family and within Livia's family who is still held in high regard at the time of their death is going to end up there. And it's a massive statement on the landscape as well. It's this big round drum of a building that was clad in marble and had trees on the top of it. And there are various reconstructions of it because as we have it now, it's just sort of the concrete core and it, it looks big, but not that spectacular. But it's a really important statement that he's there and he's founding a dynasty. It's also a good indicator of who's still in his good books when they die, and even after his death, who's in the emperor's good books. Because if you die in disgrace, if you've been exiled, then even if you're a member of the imperial family, your ashes don't get interred in there. So his daughter, Julia, who was exiled for adultery, and his granddaughter, Julia, who was exiled for the same reason, their ashes are not in there. Don't make the cut. They do not. 
So how is he remembered in the history books then? Was he a good emperor? Was he a bad emperor? Is it all down to interpretation? As with all of these things, it goes through fashions with ancient historians. So for a long time, he was thought of as a good emperor. Indeed, the cultural achievements of his reign, and they were many, not just the buildings we talked about, but there are a lot of writers who flourished under Augustus, writers like Virgil and, well, to a lesser extent, Ovid, who got sent into exile. This is kind of what used to be called a golden age of Roman literature and achievement. And so Augustus being associated with that, and he did encourage it. He was a patron of the arts. He, he, had, he had close friends who were direct patrons of some of these authors. He gets remembered as somebody who ended civil war, brought peace, and then presided over this period when there's all of this creativity going on and Rome is beautified. But I guess that's a story that sort of came to an end and, and I really think that there's one significant historian who was responsible for this, and that was Ronald Syme, who in the 1930s wrote a book called The Roman Revolution. He writes about Augustus very, very cynically as an out-and-out -out tyrant, that he brought about this revolution by violence, by force, by, as I've mentioned, getting rid of anybody who stood in his way. It's a very extreme view, but it has been quite influential on Augustus. And I guess since then, we've been going back and forth between those two extremes. I would say that currently the view is somewhere more towards tyrant than the middle, but perhaps not quite as extreme as Syme puts it. I've mentioned that I think Augustus was a tyrant. I suppose he's as close to a relatively benevolent tyrant as you can get. But I can never quite forgive him for exiling Ovid, who is my favourite poet, and what he did to poor Ovid. We don't, again, we don't know exactly why. If it was for a poem that he wrote, which was probably a very saucy poem called The Art of Love, and for a mistake, but we don't know what the mistake was. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. And you've been listening to Emperors of Rome. You can find this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, where you can subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends about it. You can find both of us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. We've also started a Facebook page, so search for Emperors of Rome on Facebook and come and discuss this podcast and the reign of the Emperor Augustus. Coming soon on Emperors of Rome, we'll continue our look at the Julio-Claudian dynasty of emperors with Emperor Tiberius the man described by Pliny the Elder as the gloomiest of men. So until then, I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.